0: The Tiger Tamer Who Went to See from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com.
1: Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth With our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia housing and see how home helps everyone. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally
0: becomes captain and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever
1: seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu.
2: This episode is brought to you by Bumble.
1: The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association.
3: I'm going to begin today's episode with some exciting news, which is that this podcast is going to be increasing from two episodes to three episodes a week. New editions will be available to download from all the usual places every Monday, Wednesday and Friday from now on. We hope that you'll enjoy these extra episodes and please do keep your feedback coming in to podcast at historyextra.com. So on today's podcast, we've got a discussion about some of the biggest misconceptions about the Middle Ages with historian Hannah Skoda. Hannah is a fellow in medieval history at the University of Oxford, and she also recently wrote a piece for our website, historyextra.com, busting some of the biggest myths about the medieval world. For today's podcast, she discussed some of these misunderstandings with our content director, Dave Musgrove.
0: I'm here with Hannah Skoda. Uh, who is Fellow and Tutor in Medieval History uh, at St John's, Oxford, and we're here in in the college um, on, a, on a lovely wintry, wet day. Um, Hannah's uh, one of our speakers at our Medieval Life and Death Days in 2020, uh, which is happening in London and York, and uh, she's also written a piece for the website History Extra about medieval misconceptions, which is a, a very interesting read. So that's what we're going to chat about. I suppose the first question before we get into these misconceptions is we ought to try and in some way define or characterize what we mean by the medieval period which i know is a bit of a, a tricky thing to do um you work in later medieval uh, period really and and you your interests are geographically quite broad um britain france germany uh, so so it's european a, yeah. italy yeah. um is is there any way to 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 meaningfully characterise what the medieval period is in terms of dates or, uh, or anything else?
2: It's a really interesting question. So generally when we talk about the Middle Ages, we mean around the year 400 to around the year 1500. But it's really problematic trying to identify a start and an end date because as soon as you do that, you're making a series of judgments about what historical events you think are more important than others. So whilst many historians, you know, kind of quarrel about whether the end date should be 1485 or whether the end date should be 1520, I think actually most people now would rather go with a very broad definition, which enables us to think um, more widely about these issues.
0: And is is there anything at all in terms of the later medieval period, the, the area where, where you um, uh, have most special, is there anything that that ties that that period together are there any sort of broad themes that we could that we could talk about
2: so i'm particularly interested in the period from around 1300 to around 1500 Um, and what strikes me particularly about about that period is just that it's a it's a, a moment of absolutely cataclysmic change really um it feels in many ways like the world sort of turns upside down and i think contemporaries were really aware of that um, so at the moment I'm working on nostalgia in the later Middle Ages and one of the reasons I think that there was a kind of wave of nostalgia in this period is precisely because everything was changing so rapidly um, and people just felt like the pace of change was, was sort of beyond their comprehension and it was really hard to keep track of, you know, the fact that half the population was dying of plague, um, that commerce was taking off, that towns were expanding at incredibly rapid rate, that politics was changing beyond recognition in many ways. So. Yeah, so I think that period of the later Middle Ages is a particularly striking um, period, just in terms of of really, really um, important um, structural change.
0: Um, And you you wrote a a very good piece for us on on this on this topic for BBC History Magazine, and which is now on History Extra, which which everyone should have a have a a read about to understand nostalgia, um, uh, which 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 is very. So so the, the driving force of this change. Was that mostly black death then is that is that the is that the key thing that's that's making things
2: that's the most obvious thing so I mean the effect of historians are now get, uh, estimating that um, mortality rates were around fifty percent obviously a bit kind of regionally variable and so on but but the effects of that in social terms and economic terms and cultural terms are in many ways just unimaginable um but it's not just that <laughs> it's also that you know towns were growing and changing um in many ways anyway. Commerce was taking off in in all kinds of striking ways in any case. Warfare was pretty much endemic through the 14th and 15th centuries. This is the period of the Hundred Years' War um, amongst other things. Um, Cultural change with the sort of early stirrings of humanism, particularly in an Italian context, the development of learning, foundation of lots of new universities. These kinds of things aren't necessarily connected to epidemic disease, but they're all happening at the same time to just really change the landscape.
0: Yeah. Okay. And it, you're right. I mean, to, to think of a fifty percent death rate is just—it just doesn't doesn't really yeah. bear thinking about, does it? And and that in itself would uh, would obviously uh, lead to great changes. So, um, okay. So we kind of set the scene a bit, um, uh, and so now let's just. Uh, let's just rumble through some of these misconceptions. So what we what what we asked you to do is just think about things um that people understand of the medieval period, um, perhaps uh the 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 ways that uh, they're seen uh, in a cultural uh, environment now, which aren't necessarily completely accurate. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to uh, uh, run off the first one of the list that you wrote for us, which was that women were so oppressed that they never did anything of interest. Which is which is <laughs> you know is is a great statement, a, a great comment to make. Um, so that that's not true, is it?
2: No, it's not true. It's certainly um, a deeply, deeply misogynist. Um, patriarchal set of societies that we're talking about when we're looking at the Middle Ages. And I, I wouldn't want to deny that in any way, that the kinds of um, structural oppression and disempowerment that women faced are um, just appalling in many ways. But at the same time, many women responded to this and and reacted in incredibly um, strategic and intelligent and sophisticated ways. Um, and there's been a kind of um, misunderstanding amongst many historians, I think, for a long time as well, that we can't really write proper histories of women because we don't have the documentation to do it. And again, that's just not true. There are lots and lots of documents um, showing that, you know, women were individuals and they did all kinds of interesting things right across the social spectrum. So we know of really famous examples like, you know, Eleanor of Aquitaine or um, Blanche of Castile. Um, We know of, of incredible peasant women who achieved amazing things like Joan of Arc. Um, But we also know about um, women who, you know, didn't necessarily become particularly famous, but nevertheless um, lived independent and um, really quite exciting lives in many ways. So, for example, we know that women were involved in the brewing industry in a a really big way. Um, And there are many examples of extremely successful Brewsters who were women. Um, There's a really lovely example I came across recently of, of three women from Hales-Owen near Birmingham. Um, And there's nothing particularly special about them. They just happened to crop up in a a document where they were tried for um, false trading in the town. And this enables us to know that they'd um, immigrated to the town together from a neighbouring village. Um, And they then supported each other in trying to find a kind of economic way of surviving, effectively. Um, And we then find one of them... uh, Tried again in the early 14th century, about 10 years after the initial case. Um, and she's tried for harbouring a thief. And it turns out the thief was her daughter. So it's a lovely example of women sort of sticking together, of, you know, moving because they're desperate. They move to the town because they're trying to find a way of surviving. They find the only way possible. Um, they then get prosecuted for false trading. But again, the kind of solidarity between them is, is really striking.
0: So 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 women had much more agency than perhaps they've been given credit for in in previous writers. It's very interesting that you talked about the sources that you were um, using Mm. there. So one would imagine that it's quite hard to find find the individual voices of of the less exalted, uh, well, men and women in the period, but but more specifically women. But are you saying that's, that's really not the case? And if you look at Court rolls or um, or or other um, uh, uh, um, legal records like that, then you can you can find their voices.
2: Exactly. Um, We don't have many letters from this period, and we don't have diaries, and you know that's really frustrating because it would be amazing if we did. But if you think outside the box a little bit and turn to legal records in particular, you can find all kinds of places where where women speak up effectively. And, you know, the case of Joan of Arc is is an amazing example because we have this enormously long trial record for her. Um, But there's many, many other cases where women are being tried or indeed prosecuting somebody else um, for a much more minor kind of offence, in which case all sorts of details about their lives are revealed. And then material culture tells us a lot about um, women as well. So surviving kind of archaeological remains um, and textiles and things like that. Yeah. Really informative.
0: Yeah. Um, but one of the uh, jumping onto to one of your other misconceptions uh, um, about um, violence, which is one yeah. of one of your sort of, your big areas of, of research, and you've, you've written for the magazine about it. Um, uh, but also tying that in with with women here, um, I recall in in the feature you wrote that that um, you were basically saying that that um, the medieval world wasn't necessarily quite as violent as we imagine it to be, but there was quite a lot of element of violence against women. Um, is is that right? Is, uh, tell, tell me about violence and 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 what sort of a society it was. So the misconception you're saying is that medieval people were brutal and mindlessly violent, and and, and again, that's not um, quite. Uh, quite true.
2: So it's really really difficult to assess actual levels of violence in the Middle Ages. There's no police force at this stage. Um, we don't know what proportion of violent crimes are actually being prosecuted. Their definitions of violence are different from ours. Different things are acceptable, unacceptable, etc. etc. So. Doing something statistical is really difficult. I think, nevertheless, it's pretty hard to deny that levels of violence, or at least levels of interpersonal violence, were higher then than they are now. But what I find really striking is that people worried about it a lot. They really agonized in a whole series of contexts. So the ways in which they thought about violence legally indicate um, some really sophisticated thinking. Um, and changing thinking about what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. We've then got a whole series of literary sources, which, again, suggest that sometimes they think violence is absolutely the right response. Sometimes they can see that this just leads to absolute chaos and that it's incredibly destructive. But the line between those two is a really difficult one to to deal with. Um, So, yes, uh, it's that kind of sophistication and agonising about Whether violence is a good or a bad thing, which really is is striking about the Middle Ages, I think.
0: But do do we know whether? And I imagine this is very hard to answer. But um, would it have been normal for somebody to walk down a street and assault somebody else if they had done something to 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 offend them, or is that because that's that is what you see in 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 some of these you know films and such like? And I, I guess there must be a social uh gradation there is that you know someone is of a higher standing and they can do things to people who are beneath them that otherwise wouldn't be
2: legally you can't you can't ever just beat someone up because you feel like it nevertheless if you're a nobleman and you do that to your surf say um in many cases you simply won't be prosecuted and in any case the penalty is certainly a lot less than if it's the other way around where it's absolutely catastrophic yeah. Um, the same, you know, in a domestic abuse context as well. If, a, if a, wife, a husband beats his wife, that is not okay the vast majority of the time. But if a wife assaults her husband, that's bordering on treason. And if she murders her husband, that's treason. That's not just murder. Um, so
3: treason. there's certainly
2: a sense wow. that, you know, it's petty treason. So status sort of plays into this. But it's never okay just to walk down the street and punch somebody because you <laughs> feel like it. So, so it's not normal, but at the same time, it's, I think it's probably relatively common in yeah. some contexts.
0: Yeah. And just thinking a bit about the, the sources that, that um, one might use to analyze these sorts of things. You, you've, you've just mentioned a few different ways that you can understand things, so your literary sources and things like that, and the difficulties of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of doing any sorts of statistical analysis. You would imagine if you if you're doing certain sorts of medieval history, if you're looking particularly to try and understand the finances of the state, then there are certain obvious sources that you would look at because they, they they contain it. But to understand social trends, you're going to have to look much more widely. How do you how do you work out where you're most likely to find something that's going to be interesting?
2: Gosh, that's a, a really difficult question to answer generically. Um, so some people start with you know an amazing body of sources that they've discovered, and then they just you know, go through that particular corpus of sources and and think about what that tells them about the particular um, period that they're looking at. Um, Most people, I think, would rather come with a question in the first place, and then they have to think very carefully about what sources to look at. So, for example, I wanted to look a few years ago at um, interpersonal violence in northern France. It turned out that the region I was interested in um, was a region of customary law. Um, which was largely unwritten, and that they tended not to keep detailed legal records. What they did keep was financial accounts. And in those financial accounts, they would detail all the payments made by people who'd been prosecuted. So payments as as punishment. Um, And they'd also detail all the payments for hangman's rope, and the executioner's fee, and stuff like that. So again, by sort of thinking outside the box, you can find a way into the particular question, even when that body of sources no longer exists
0: okay and that obviously is is one of the ways to challenge some of these misconceptions let's let's have a a go another one um which is which is a nice one to try and uh, take down everyone was short and died young (laughs) um and and that you must then this one is where uh you could possibly get some more statistical analysis i would imagine because you've got skeletal remains for instance exactly
2: i mean i think this is something where um archaeologists are the real experts who can who can um give us really detailed and really concrete insights. The difficulty with with, um, archaeological analysis is always that it's very tempting to extrapolate from a couple of skeletons that you happen to have found and to draw a much, much bigger picture. Um, But the more this evidence is put together, the more it appears that the differences in height um, and in um, age of death are, are just much less dramatic than we'd thought. I've also found it very striking in the sources, in the documentary sources that I've looked at, um, to find many witnesses being summoned in legal cases who were in their 80s or in their 90s so clearly not everybody lives till in their 80s or 90s but it's not that unusual either
0: mm which which leads you to then think about the nature of uh old age in this period i don't know i'm not sure if that was one of your um misconceptions or not i, I can't i don't think it was but i mean i had what, childhood but i didn't childhood. have
2: old age so.
0: we'll, we'll go to childhood in a second but i mean you know living to a living to a, a ripe old age yeah is in itself a bit of a misconception because you kind of expect it to be a much more youthful population
2: exactly yeah i think i mean our our views have been slightly skewed by the fact that infant mortality is, is extremely high. Yeah. Um, and that makes life expectancy look shorter than it perhaps was if one got through that initial stage.
0: Yeah. Let's leap onto that, the, the childhood ones. Cause that's, I mean, that is a great one, isn't it? So you, you, but you know, we, we kind of think that, that there is no concept of childhood in the middle. Yeah. You kind of, you, you, you're born, you, you're breastfed, and then <laughs> you suddenly, you're, suddenly you're sent off to, you know, to peel turnips or whatever. And, and yeah. that's, and that's you. Um, uh, and, and there's no there's no moment of uh, of, of childhood. Um, t- tell us tell so, us why, why that's so. Not the case. They think
2: about childhood in all kinds of really really interesting ways. Um, and there's lots of ways into this for us as historians. So we could think about medieval schooling, um, which is is really very common and really takes off in the later Middle Ages as well, um, with the foundation of lots of schools to try and provide kind of elementary and then potentially kind of grammar school education for young people um we could think about it via um, material survival so we could think about um, toys and also really cute clothing that survives for children as well i saw recently a, a beautiful image um, of a little boy playing with a he's got a little baby walker that he's kind of trotting around the room in and it's from about 1300, and it's it's just so sweet. And the baby walker looks a lot like the kinds of things that my kids have as well. And that suggests that, you know, they're really thinking about children as, as somehow different from adults, that they have particular needs and they want to accommodate those needs. Um, we could think about it as well in terms of what they had to say about disciplining children. Um, and again, there's, you know, there's a very clear sense that children should be disciplined. Um, but at the same time, there's a sense that, you know their children, and what's discipline going to achieve? And you've got to be moderate about it. And and there's a whole conversation which emerges around that question, which is really interesting.
0: And but just thinking about uh, well, schooling particularly, um, there must be a big element uh, again of, of social status. There mm. is that you know the the, the, the upper mm. classes, the nobility would presumably have readier access to schooling than uh, than the peasantry, is that is Yeah, that so I
2: mean the, the, the kind of education that at a noble level one would have expected would have involved private tutors. Um, schools are generally intended for middling sorts really effectively. Um, a really amazing example is in the village of Uelm, which is quite near here in fact, um, which is a, a absolutely beautiful medieval village. Um, effectively kind of refounded by Alice Chaucer, who is the daughter of Geoffrey Chaucer, um, in the 1430s. Anyway, and she she um, endowed a school and some almshouses and a church. And they're all there and they've all still there, sorry, and they've all been in continuous operation since their foundation. So the school is still there. Um, and you can still hear the children playing in the playground. The almshouses right next to it still being used as almshouses, and then there's the church. And there's a real sense that the point of a medieval community was to care for people across the social spectrum, from their birth through to their death. So, you know, Alice Chaucer is there to extremely paternalistic sort of way, look after the people of the community by providing schooling for them. Um, then they go and work. And then when they enter old age and can no longer look after themselves, there's a possibility of them being looked after in the arms houses. And they're all supposed to go to church all the time.
0: Okay. Um, moving on slightly from the education uh, um, uh, aspect, um, another one of your misconceptions is that peasants were revolting and irrational, i.e. they were, they were a bit stupid and, and, and uneducated, mm-hmm. which you've, you've kind of just you know, mm-hmm. challenged there anyway. But, but, um, but, but tell us more about that one.
2: So I think, I mean, I, the majority of peasants wouldn't have had the opportunity to go to school, I think. So there are some kind of extraordinary examples, but but nevertheless, somehow they seem to have acquired um, really quite sophisticated understandings, both of um, agricultural practice, and it's been shown that they made some very sophisticated decisions about how to um, manage their agricultural interests, Um, but also in legal terms, that they had a a really um, striking kind of depth of legal understanding so there's a wonderful example from um, the manor of Bocking in Essex. Um, so this is in the early 14th century, and they're really upset with the bailiff, who they feel is making completely unreasonable demands on them as, as villains. Um, so they cite Magna Carta 1215, um, and they cite the manorial customs, and they're aware of these these kind of legal protections which are apparently afforded to them, um, and they win their case effectively, so that the the bailiff is castigated for the way he's been treating them, and and they get some protections. There's another wonderful example from um, 1377 of a, a group of peasants who again feel that the dues that are being demanded of them by their lord are completely unfair. Um, and they actually hire lawyers um, to represent them, um, and they um, go and purchase a copy of their rights as enshrined in the Doomsday Book of 1086, and they cite these in order to demand that their rights should be respected. So these were clearly people who, you know, they were not stupid at all. They knew how to um, how to refer to legal documents to try and um, protect their rights. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And My favourite scene is a group of students sitting on a boat um, underneath the petit pont. They're sitting on the Seine, and um, taking off their um, clerical garb to leap in and have a good skinny dip in the Seine. Yeah, so there's a sense that, you know, the town is a place of entertainment and fun. It's a place of trade and commerce. Um, and, and it's also a place of suffering um, because you have beggars and lepers and so on depicted in the same scenes. This
3: episode is brought to you by Zip ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. A place of your own, in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special home ownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Okay, towns,
0: medieval towns. Um, you kind of uh, imagine them to be terrible, unhealthy, squalid, nasty places. You kind of picture if you ever go to York, you kind of wander down the shambles and you imagine that place just, you know, just stinking of flesh yeah. and blood everywhere and people slinging excrement out of windows and stuff. That, that can't be Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I'd always imagined medieval towns as being pretty grim, (laughs) pretty much as you've just described. But there's been a lot of really recent scholarship, actually, on policing in late medieval towns. So we can't talk about police as such. There's certainly no police force, but we can talk about policing um, in the sense that they were really keen on um, regulating and trying to ensure that that towns were kept a bit cleaner, that people didn't just dispose of their rubbish and their sewage and that sort of thing in the middle of the street, that people didn't just allow their animals to wander around unchecked and so on.
0: Yeah. Um, and what? So what was the experience of living in a town like that? It must have been. It, it must have been, in terms of our uh, our conception of it, it must have been a lot less clean a lot less structured I
2: think it must have been and I think it must have been less distinct from the countryside than we perhaps imagine as well so most towns had an enormous amount of you know market gardening and keeping of livestock and that sort of thing going on within within the town or the city um I think they must have been fairly unpleasant I must admit (laughs) at the same time there are lots and lots of um really interesting kind of depictions of, of sort of idealized towns um from this period it's very hard to know how far they're idealized and how far that's what it was actually like. There's a wonderful manuscript from early 14th century Paris um, called La Vie de Saint-Denis, which is about the first Bishop of Paris who was called Saint-Denis. Um, anyway, he's in the, the very, very early Middle Ages. But in the illuminations in this manuscript, they include scenes from early 14th century Paris. So it gives us a lovely sense of what the city looked like at that stage. And there's a whole series of scenes of town life on the bridges of the city. I'm specifically on the Petit Pont by Notre Dame, and um, anyway, there are scenes of like dancing monkeys and dancing bears to amuse people. There's a physician holding up a little bottle of urine to inspect it for a customer. Um, there's lots and lots of trading and commerce and that sort of going up thing going on. Um, there's a leper sitting there on the bridge with his clappers, um, so that people know not to come too close, but to give him some money. Um, there are people singing. There are people coming in from the countryside um, with stuff to sell. There's people fishing in the Seine. um, And my favourite scene is a group of students sitting on a boat um, underneath the petit pont. They're sitting on the Seine and um, taking off their um, clerical garb to leap in and have a good skinny dip in the Seine. So, yeah. So there's a sense that, you know, the town is a place of entertainment and fun. It's a place of trade and commerce. um, and, And it's also a place of suffering. Um, because you have beggars and lepers and so on depicted in the same scenes.
0: It's very, the point you made about the distinction between town and country um, seems very interesting to me because quite mm. often when you see a, a, a medieval film, you know, it's a depiction of medieval, the, they, the peasants come in from the country and they're wide-eyed at the, at yeah. the great, you know, the, the enormous change that they, they see yeah. when they wander into into the streets of London or whatever. Do
2: you, do you so I think, I mean, in the Middle Ages, I think they try to present cities as very distinctive but I don't think they're as distinctive as they are nowadays, if that makes sense. Okay. There's a great little story from 13th century France about a peasant who goes to the town to sell his, um, whatever he's been growing, his turnips or something. And um, anyway, he arrives in the town and he takes the wrong street in to get to the market by mistake. He goes through the street with all the perfume sellers and um, and he just cannot stand the smell of all these perfumes. So he faints in the end. And the townspeople discover the, the body of this peasant who's fainted realize what's happened but he just couldn't take the sophistication of the urban smells and so they throw him onto a dung heap at which point he comes around he goes oh thank goodness for that now it smells familiar so yeah it's a little 13th century story about how towns are completely different from the countryside but i think that's part of their whole process of trying to kind of elevate themselves above above their surroundings
0: brilliant brilliant okay we'll do we'll do a couple more um uh this this one is nice. Medieval people had no sense of humour, um, which is you know you you have Monty Python uh, <laughs> depictions of, of them uh, uh, being being somewhat humorous. So so can we see humour? Can we see a sense of, of, of
2: definitely? Humor in there, yes, definitely. Sometimes it's humour that I think really does appeal to us. Like the little story I just told, I find that quite funny. Yeah. Sometimes it's um, I just find it absolutely not funny. It's kind of abhorrent. Um, And so, you know, in a sense, it's a good reminder of of alterity, of difference. They're very different from us. These are very different societies with very different senses of humour. Very often it's completely obscene um, and sometimes it's very, very violent. So the idea that one would make fun of people with physical difference um, or, you know, humiliate people, that's deemed to be completely hilarious. But what's really interesting is that they see humour as something really positive. So um, I have a a quotation from a medieval joke book here. This is from um, the 15th century joke book of Poggio Bracciolini.
0: Perfect. Is this going to make me laugh?
2: No, this is just about (laughs) why humour is important. It's actually rather pompous. Okay. He says, it's proper and almost a matter of necessity commanded by philosophers that our minds weighed down by a variety of cares and anxiety should now and then enjoy relaxation from its constant labours and be invited to cheerfulness. Anyway, so that's his, his introduction to a kind of book of cracker jokes effectively right. from the 15th century. There's another great story from the 13th century um, about two Englishmen on a holiday in France. And um, one of them gets a bit ill while he's there. And he says he's just got to go to bed because he feels so lousy. Um, and his friend says, is there anything I can do to help? I says, Yes, I think lamb stew, that would really help me, make me feel a bit better. So his friend goes off to the butchers to try and buy some lamb. But because he's English, he can't pronounce the new sound of the French word "agneau" for wow. lamb. So he says he wants some "annu." So the butcher gives him some baby donkey because he thinks it's like the diminutive form of the French anne of donkey. So he gives him some baby donkey meat. They go home um, make this stew and um not realizing that it's baby donkey meat, both think it tastes a bit strange, finally realize that it was because of the mispronunciation. And then the the two friends burst out laughing. And the one who was sick is cured from his illness by the act of laughing. Oh, there we so are. So the whole story is about how, you know, laughter can make you better again.
0: Um. I'm just uh, brought to mind of some of the scenes in the bio tapestry I know it's slightly earlier than that yeah. but there's, there's some elements of sort of slapstick in there with some yeah. men messing around with spades and, and yeah. things like that but also there's some quite graphic um, uh, scenes of nudity and things like that which I, I don't know whether yeah. they are supposed to be in any way humorous or not but um, but you can you know, even in that in that document you can see yeah. quite
2: a lot Actually and that makes a really important point that what's really striking about the Middle Ages is they don't see anything inappropriate about putting humour beside really serious stuff you know, you don't need to feel that humorous material as a separate genre from serious material, and that's a much later idea, really. That you know, the humor should be separate from tragedy. So you can put the whole lot together and and, and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: Right. One. One last one then, because we need to we need to save a few of these misconceptions for people to uh, to go to the website and and read about. But. Um, uh, this is sort of uh, going into the whole mindset of, of, uh, of the medieval person that religious dogma meant that they no one fought for themselves. Um, yeah. So we kind of think that their everyone's lives in, in the Middle Ages is entirely ruled by the church, and uh, you know that, that they can't diverge from the teachings that they that they have. Is that I mean, but presumably people did did yeah. do things differently.
2: So there's certainly an element of truth in that because this is the period of the foundation of the Inquisition. Yeah. Um, heresy is a thing and if you are convicted as a heretic then you are burned um, and unequally in kind of intellectual contexts where people are debating really serious fundamental religious questions there are moments of extreme censorship say the 1270s are a, a moment when there's a real kind of clampdown. but in general I think one could really say that this is a period of um, really expansive intellectual argument and debate about religion, um, and about, you know, the proper way to think about the nature of God, for example. So they're addressing the really fundamental questions and they're not afraid to do so. Um, and then in a wider sense, um, just practically, in a way, the church can't control everything that people are thinking and doing um, at a local level. And so we find an enormous kind of range of practices and a really blurred line between kind of orthodox official religious practice and the kinds of things that people are doing at a local level. So there's the famous example of the holy greyhound from the south of France, where um the villagers had decided that this greyhound who saved the life of a baby was actually a saint and could work miracles. Um, I've got here this is a little facsimile um, of a pilgrimage badge of John Sean um, who's a he was at Oxford actually he was a master at Oxford and then he was the priest at North Marston in Buckinghamshire not very far away from here Um, and he's famous for having um, dealt with um, a problem that the villagers had with the devil by popping the devil into a boot so that's what's shown in this little pilgrimage badge here. This is John Sean and he's holding the boot and here's the devil, which he's popping into the boot. Anyway, this was a a miracle which was never sanctioned by the church because it's a little bit bizarre apart from anything else. It became a really, really popular pilgrimage site. So Northmaster now has an enormous church because so many pilgrims went there um, who wanted to visit the relics of this man who popped the devil into a boot. And the pilgrims would buy themselves a souvenir like this badge or... um, Apparently, this is the origin of the jack-in-the-box. You could get a little toy with a boot. So you could pop the devil in, and then they would pop out, and you could pop him back in. Um, anyway, but again, it's just a nice example of, of the way in which popular religious beliefs and practices expanded way beyond what the church was telling people. And the church didn't necessarily have a problem with it. So John Sean, they were you know reasonably happy about the, the whole thing, even though they never officially made him into a saint.
0: Okay, I'm gonna take a, a photo of that pilgrim badge uh, in a second on my phone, and we'll try and get that on the on the website so people can refer to it when uh, once we're talking um but I mean you, you kind of imagine the medieval landscape to one rife of superstition and 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 uh, magic and you know a sort of a sense yeah. that there was that there was magic things going on is that that, that 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 was a reality for for people
2: I think probably yes there's um there's lots of really interesting surviving material at medieval amulets. Um, which were used particularly by uh, pregnant women and, and would come with little scrolls with a text that you could read out, which is kind of Christian, like it would say, I don't know, Mary, Mother of God, and you're supposed to kind of say it five times while jumping over something or other. Yeah. So there's a sense in which it's sort of magic, it's sort of Christianity. Is a really There's a really blurred line um, between the two, I think. Um, one figure who's really interesting um, right across the Middle Ages is the figure of St. Thomas. Um, who's the, so he was the apostle who didn't believe that it was Christ when he first saw the risen Christ. And he said he wouldn't believe him until he'd seen the marks on his hands to show that he'd actually been on the cross. So he gets known as doubting Thomas because he doubted when he was confronted with the figure of the risen Christ. They think about doubting Thomas a lot in the Middle Ages and they conclude that he's a really positive figure for Christians to look up to because he embodies their kind of spiritual quest for understanding. So that suggests that actually they think doubt is not a bad thing, that questioning and thinking and wondering about the nature of one's faith um, is actually in many ways something to be encouraged.
0: But presumably not outright. Atheism. Not too much.
2: <laughs> you just have to get it just right. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, right, so we, we've covered quite a few of those misconceptions now all very interesting um things and that, as I said, there are a few left that uh, that um people can go and read about on the website and uh, and uh, and find out a bit more. but I'm just wondering as a final um uh, final thought um let's assume we've we've got a time machine working and we could go back to i don't know 13th 14th century canterbury and stand in a street. would it how alien would it feel to us do you think? Would we would we be feeling like we are in a completely foreign land uh, by by going back there?
2: It's a really really interesting question. Um, I think it would feel very different. I must say, I don't think it would feel completely alien, and I think one would be able to find one's way around and and manage and communicate and to some degree feel a sense of commonality with with the people around one. Um, but at the same time. I think everything would look so strange and just the kind of sensory experience um, would feel utterly overwhelming in many ways.
0: Okay hopefully you'll be writing more for us again in the future have you got a, a what are you working on have you got a, another book coming out? Oh, I'm
2: still working on the nostalgia thing so hopefully that book will appear soon but <laughs> it's a long process.
0: Okay thank you very much.
3: That was Hannah Skoda. Hannah is also one of the speakers at our Medieval Life and Death Days, which are taking place at the British Library in London on March the 14th and St John's University, York, on 16th of May 2020. Tickets for those events are on sale now. Just visit historyextra.com forward slash events for more details. If you want to read Hannah's article on the subject and see the Pilgrim Badge that she refers to in the conversation – go to historyextra.com forward slash misconceptions. And do check out the January issue of BBC History magazine, where the cover feature delves into the world of medieval hygiene. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back, as I mentioned before, on Wednesday, when Jack Fairweather will be sharing the remarkable story of a secret agent who broke into Auschwitz.